If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Titus. If you're not sure where uh, Titus is, it might be easiest to start in Revelation and start heading left. Uh, and you will eventually find Titus. That would be easier than starting at Genesis for sure. So Titus, and we will be in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 14 this morning. We'll focus uh, particularly on verses 11 through 14, and I'll explain that for a little bit. Uh, So this is our third sermon in a brief series here on the book of Titus, uh, a brief series that, uh, as of last night, got one message longer. Um, But it's a letter that's uh, written to Paul and to his son and partner in the ministry, Titus. Uh, Titus is overseeing the churches, as we've said, on the island of Crete, and he's facing Cretan culture that's marked by um, a propensity towards evil, towards lying and gluttony, and he's facing them alongside um, the false teaching of the circumcision party that's saying it's necessary to obey the law of Moses in order to be God's children. So Paul writes this letter to instruct Titus on how to put things in order, how to establish elders, how to see the church function within itself and in the world in a way that honors God and proclaims the gospel. And Paul wants Titus to trust the gospel. He wants him to trust the gospel, so he's assuring him that the gospel is powerful enough to transform the worst of people into godly members of Christ's church. That's what we've said is the big theme of the book of Titus. And then last week we saw that in chapter 1, God graciously gives church leaders transformed by the gospel who boldly proclaim the gospel. We thought about how uh, men are called to lead the church and they should have a a character that cannot be questioned, um, that they should give instruction, that values sound doctrine, and that they should be ready to confront the lies of false teachers. So that's a summary of where we've been. Uh, Here in chapter 2, Paul moves from the leadership in the church to the members in the church. And I think what he's trying to teach us here is this, that the gospel makes godly living possible for all of God's children. That's our big idea. I know we're emphasizing gospel, but I think that's what Paul's doing. So the gospel makes godly living possible. And it does it for all of God's children. The gospel makes godly living possible for all of God's children. Now, I could say that, and it could just sound like some sort of theory. It could sound like some churchy sort of phrase, um, and it doesn't seem practical, but it's very practical. Uh, let me explain why this is extremely practical for each of our lives. Okay? Just two thoughts right as we enter into this text. One is that it helps us to understand that everyone is called to godly living. Everyone is called to godly living. Everyone is called to, to see good works, if you're a child of God, to see good works manifest in your life. So Paul moves from the elders to everyone. And so if we were thinking that the only people who need to see the the, the good, good works as the fruit of their faith, and the only people that need to do that are the elders, then we find out that we're, we are dead wrong. Uh, pastors and, and church leaders are, are unique in their calling, but they're not unique in the calling to live godly lives. All of God's children are supposed to look like him in the way that they live. So every one of us, if we are a child of God, is called to godly living. I think that's the first way that this seems so practical. This is the call on every single person who names the name of Christ. This is the call in our life. It's also practical because Paul is telling us that godly living is possible. Godly living is is possible. So Christmas will be here before we know it, two weeks. And then begins the charge towards the new year. 
And as we head toward the new year, we begin the time-honored tradition of resolving to do things next year that we won't really do. Uh, <laughs> that's how New Year's resolutions often go. Uh, but isn't that how life often goes? Doesn't it feel that way? If you're anything like me, the most frustrating person in your life is you. I am the most frustrating person in my life. I can give you a pretty long list of the ways that I have disappointed myself in the last year, and I could give you a companion list of all the resolutions that I could make uh, to stop disappointing myself. But then sometimes I think, who am I kidding, you know? Can I really change? Can you really change? I think Paul's telling us if you are a child of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then the answer is yes. You can, you can change. You can live in a way that honors God. Godly living is possible. And God's word to us this morning is that the gospel makes godly living possible for all of God's children. And it's practical because we are all called to this godly life, and it's, and it's, it's possible for all of us to live in the way that God has called us to. Okay? So be encouraged, and let's be challenged by this text. So we're going to read uh, Titus 2, verses 1 through 14. And just note the brief outline. You probably have a paragraph break at, at verse 11 in your Bible. Um, so verses 1 through 10 are going to focus on <clears throat> excuse me, the good works that we are called to. And then verses 11 through 14 are going to focus on the role of the gospel in those good works. So in other words, the, the first part gives us the what. The what we are supposed to do and be. And the second part gives us the how. The how we are going to be who we are called to be. Okay, So 1 through 10 is the what. Uh, 11 to 14 is the how. Titus 2, verses 1 through 14. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opportunity may, may be, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, the the main idea is that the gospel makes godly living possible for all of God's children. And here in verses 1 through 10 at the beginning, we see the, the, we see the good works that we are called to. That's the what. That's the, verses 1 through 10 is the good works that we are called to. 
there's an outline, and you, you can see it. Um, if you know how to read, then you can find this outline very easily. He talks to different groups of people and talks about how godly characteristics, how good works, what kind of good works should be manifested in their lives. So he begins in verse 2 with older men. Then in verse 3, he talks about older women. Verses 4 and 5 address younger women. And verse 6 addresses younger men. And verses 7 and 8 go back to Titus himself and elders. And verses 9 through 10 have a special word to bond servants or slaves. Now, we're going to look at these specific characteristics and these good works, but we are not going to do it this morning um, for different reasons. One reason um, is that I want to get to, to verses 11 through 14 to see that the how, the motivation, um, just because of that danger of moralism. I don't want you to walk out of here saying, here's the list of things I need to do. But also, I just want to think about them a little bit more. Um, to be honest, my bandwidth was a little occupied this week, and there's some things that need to be processed through here. Some of those phrases probably stood out to you, and I just want to do them justice. And so we will probably look at those next week. But let me just give some broad um, observations from verses 1 through 10, because I think you could get into the list and, and miss the forest for the trees. I think there's a broad, some broad things that Paul is telling us here, too, so let's think about the broad things, and then we'll think about the motivation, and then next week we'll get into the nitty-gritty of it, okay? Um, so just four sort of observations um, from verses 1 through 10. One is this. Our station in life informs our sanctification focus. Our station in life informs our, our sanctification focus. So, So just as the position of elder informs the character focus of a person, it would seem that our position in life, uh, particularly in terms of age or gender, informs what good works and godly character traits we're supposed to focus on. Now, of course, some of these cut across no matter who you are, but it's interesting that he points out specific things for specific groups of of people. Um, That may seem like common sense, but I think we, we forget it sometimes, and probably because we are more self-absorbed than we, than we would like to admit. You know, we're in our station of life, um, and I know what I struggle with, and I know what I don't struggle with, and that's what everyone else struggles with, and what everyone else doesn't struggle with, which is not true. Uh, different stations in life mean there's different trials. And in fact, just because someone is your same age doesn't mean that they're going to struggle with the same things you do, or be victorious over the same things you are. And so I think it's just interesting to think that there's a focus for each of these different groups. So Paul's helping Titus to see how he can help men and women in his church in different ways. And he helps him to see how different stages in their life mean that there's going to be a different focus on, in terms of what kind of good works do you want, what, how, how is godliness going to be manifested in each of these different groups. I think that's just interesting, and we would do well to look at our own hearts and think, what specifically do I need to, to, to focus on at this stage in my life? So that's the first thought. Our station in life informs our sanctification focus. Second thought, uh, self-control is always necessary. Self-control is always necessary. Did you notice how often self-control appears in these verses? It shows up there in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control. It's something that the older women are supposed to teach the younger women in verse 5. They're to teach them to be self-controlled. I love this. What's the one... Uh, command for younger men. Teach them to be self-controlled. Like, just give them one thing to focus on, okay? They just need to control themselves. 
Uh, I think that's interesting. And then it shows up as a summary in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control. Um, two thoughts on that. I think Paul's probably emphasizing self-control in part because that's going to stand against this culture that Titus is ministering in. Um, you think about the Cretans who are devoted to all these things, they seem to lack self-control. So Paul's saying, you should be self-controlled. How applicable to us as well. We seem to live in, in a culture that is, is obsessed with excess and lacks self-control. And if we could be self-controlled, we would shine against the culture in which we live in. Another thought that I'm processing still, and you can process with me, is that maybe self-control... While it's not just the one way to sum it up, it, it may be one of the keys to godliness and to holy living. In other words, if, if everyone just focused on being self-controlled, or, or maybe to say it in, in a different way, to be controlled by the Spirit, if we would focus on that, then wouldn't we be walking with God in a, in a, in a unique way? If by God's grace we could see ourselves growing to control our anger, uh, to control our appetites, to control our bodies, to control our minds, to control every part of ourselves, wouldn't godliness be springing out in our lives in a unique way? I think so. So maybe this week think about self-control. If we, I just focused on self-control and asked God to give me greater self-control in each area of my life. What would that look like? So self-control is always necessary. That's the second observation. A third broad observation, the fruits of godly living are rooted in the work of the whole church. The fruits of godly living are rooted in the work of the whole church. This is to push against our individualistic mentality, okay? Uh, of course, God's Spirit is the ultimate fruit-bearing part of us as believers. If, if we're bearing fruit, if, if we're holy in any way, if there's any good works in us, it's because God is working them out in us. But the fruits of godly living are also rooted in the work of the whole church. We find here that, that it's through the ministry, not just of the elders, but of the older women in particular are mentioned here. And I think by, we could assume that the, the older men are also assumed to be a part of this. But the members of the church are supposed to help and encourage one another in godly living and in good works. Isn't that interesting? Older women, you have a role. Older men, you have a role to lead. You're needed in the church. It's not just elders. It's not just these leaders. It's every part of the church is working together. And for the most part, there's someone that's younger than you. <laughs> and so we're all discipling. Disciples are making disciples. That's what the church is going to look like. I really want to think more about that. That's why we're going to come back to these verses. But the fruits of godly living are rooted in the work of the whole church. And then fourth, uh, good works protect and adorn the gospel. That's another theme that's running through this. Good works protect and adorn the gospel. They, they're like ornaments on a Christmas tree. They make the gospel look beautiful. You see that here in, um, in, in verse 5. The instruction is given, and then the purpose for why it's given is, is there that the word of God may not be reviled. You see it also in verse 8, that Titus is supposed to act a certain way. Why? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And why are the bondservants to act a certain way? Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. But holiness 
godly living, good works, are not just to be something that is, is kept to ourselves, but it is something that is meant to shine forth in the world and to confront the world and also to make the gospel seem real and true because of the way that we live. These people have been changed. So good works protect and adorn the gospel. Those are four broad thoughts about these different um, characteristics and good works that are to be built in our lives. And we're going to come back to this. So we're going to look at this passage sort of in reverse order. So that's the what. But then Paul gets into the, the how. And this second section from 11 to 14 we'll call the role of the gospel in good works. The role of the gospel in good works. We keep saying that the gospel does this and the gospel does that. Let's dig down in that a little bit, okay? So what is the role of the gospel in these good works? You, you see that it's, it's a ground. Verse 11, 4. So he said all of these things in verses 1 through 10. And now he says, for, the, the reason that I want you to do this, the power to do this, the how you're going to do it is rooted in the fact that the grace of God has appeared. So the role of the gospel in good works, let's, let's just answer the question, what is the gospel? Uh, what is the gospel specifically within this context, okay? We know that gospel means good news. Uh, it's the good news that Jesus has made a way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled back to a holy God. And here in Titus, Paul talks about the gospel from a few different angles. So the first one is th- this, the gospel is the incarnation. Seems so appropriate that we would talk about the incarnation around Christmas. The gospel is the incarnation. What does verse 1 say? It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is Christmas. What a wonderful thing that when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, what is, what, how does the grace of God make its appearance? In Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God in human form. And, and he appears on the scene of human history to set all things right and to make us right with God. This was the appearing that the Jewish people had been waiting and waiting for since the promise made to Abraham. Until there was a day, just like any other day, when a teenage girl, uh, hidden in the streets of Bethlehem, was there with her faithful fiancé beside her, and she gave birth to a baby boy. And in that moment, the grace of God appeared in the world in an amazing way. So the gospel here is the incarnation. The gospel is the death and the resurrection. It's the death and the resurrection. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. There's more echoes of Christmas here because Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. Jesus is the greatest giver of gifts. And in the gospel, he gives himself his very life's blood to redeem us. The word redemption, behind that word is the idea of someone paying a ransom in order to set someone free. And in his death, Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God and he lays down his life for the sake of the sheep. He was blameless in all respects, but he paid the penalty for our sins so that we could have the, so that we could be reconciled to him through faith and repentance so that we could be freed from our enslavement to the law and to sin and to death. Jesus is the greatest giver of gifts. And he doesn't give like Santa Claus, right? Jesus sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. And he knows if you've been bad or good. And he knows you've been bad. <laughs> all of us. That He knows that we are all 
sinners, and he knew it 2,000 years ago before he ever came. And still he came for us, and he gave himself for us. The good news of Christmas is, is not that we deserve, is, that we, is, is in fact that we don't deserve any gifts based on who we are and what we have done. The message of Christmas is that while we were still helpless, lost in our sins, and rebels against God, that God gave himself to the point of death to free us from sin. And so salvation comes to us, not by being good for goodness sake, right? It comes to us by believing in the work of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the incarnation, the gospel is the death and resurrection, and the gospel is the second coming. The gospel is the second coming. It's the second advent. Most often our understanding of the gospel ends at the point of repentance and faith. But wrapped up in the incarnation, in the first coming of Jesus, and in the atonement and the death and resurrection of Jesus, is this second coming of Jesus. It's, it's in verse 13. He, he calls it, Paul says, we're, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a, what a great phrase, the blessed hope. The good news of Jesus is is not complete unless we bookend his first coming with his with his second coming. Because in his second coming he comes to set all things right. Evil and sin they still exist in this fallen world. And the hope of the gospel is that Jesus will one day split the sky and he will return to gather all of his chosen children to himself to punish those that have rejected him as the only hope of salvation. It's a comfort to us to know that while we have been redeemed fully by Christ, we will fully understand our redemption when he returns. So when I say the, the, the gospel, and when Paul's talking about the gospel, and how the, the gospel is, is the, the force uh, that helps us to, to see good works, we're talking about the incarnation of Jesus, we're talking about his death and resurrection, and we're talking about his second coming, especially in this context, because that's all that, that Paul spells out here. So, how does that make godly living possible? I, I want to answer that how question in two ways. So, how does the gospel make godly living possible? One, the gospel empowers us to godly living. And two, the gospel instructs us in godly living. So, we'll think about the first one, that the gospel empowers us. gives us the power for godly living. And then secondly, that the gospel instructs us in godly living. So the first idea, the gospel empowers us to godly living. If you were to ask, why has Jesus come? We can answer that in part with verse 14. He gave himself, why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he has come, he has given himself. There's two reasons there, do you see it? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So the gospel is not a ticket out of hell. That, that's not the point of the gospel. That's not the full point of the gospel. Rather, it's that Jesus has come and set us free from enslavement to sin, and, and he's making us a pure people. The gospel results in eternal salvation, but it also results in freedom from sin, and it results in purity in our lives. It's not something that, that happened in the past and has no bearing on the present or the future. It's something that happened in the past and changes radically everything that happens in our future. 
So think about that first part. It's, it says that we were enslaved to lawless deeds. He's redeemed us. He's, he's bought us out of all lawlessness. We see a description of that in chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Look at this phrase. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were. Every single one of us apart from Christ. And Jesus has come to redeem us out of that. To change us. We were slaves to sin. We were unable to do anything for God. We could not live lives that were pleasing to him. And Jesus gives himself to buy us out of that slavery. And not only has he freed us from sin, but now he's purifying us. Look at those phrases in verse 14. He's redeemed us from all lawlessness, and he's purifying for himself. He's purifying us for himself. It's, it's for his glory. What's he doing? He's purifying for himself a people for his own possession. People for his own possession. He's making us a special people. His chosen children. He's, he's making us unique in this world. He's purifying us for himself. He's making us people for his own possession. And then it says, what kind of people are, are we? We are people who are zealous for good works. We are enthusiastic. We are eager to perform good deeds. That's what, what the gospel is going to do in us. Before we didn't care, but now we do. He's taken us from slavery and he's totally changed us. And we're continually being changed. Before we cared only about ourselves. That's all we cared about. That's that description in verse 3. But now, we want to do nothing except glorify Him. Before we were slaves. Now what are we? We're sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters with Jesus. Before, we could not perform any good deeds. We didn't even want to. We had no desire to. But now, that's the zeal of our lives. That's all we want to do is glorify God through godly living. How has that happened? Who has done this? God. God alone. The gospel has changed us, and the gospel empowers us towards godly living. And if the gospel has changed us and empowered us, then the the call to sanctification, the call to godly living, and we've said this before, the call is to be who you are. It's to become who God has made you in Christ. This is who we are. And godly living and holiness, when it's worked out in our lives, is us becoming who God has already made us in Christ. So when we realize that it's the gospel that empowers us, it it keeps us from a few errors. And we've talked about these before, but boy, they crop up in my life all the time. And so I think it's good to remember them. If If we think that the way that towards godly living is because God, through the gospel, and the work of the Holy Spirit is empowering us to live godly lives. It's going to keep us from a couple things. The first is the thought that, that godly living or good deeds are going to earn salvation. Okay. It, it keeps us from thinking that the good that we do is what makes us Christians. That's the false teachers, remember? Keep the law of Moses. That's what's going to make you a, a Christian. But Scripture is clear that followers of Christ will we'll live lives that are pleasing to God, but it's also clear that, that those godly lives don't, don't make us Christians. I love that Paul doesn't shy away from saying, do good works, but he's very clear that that's not what saves us. It, very clear, especially in verse 4, after that list of who we were apart from Christ, verse 4 of chapter 3, I'm sorry, 
chapter 3, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And he still is telling us we need to do good works. He's just saying that's not how you are saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you say, I already know that. And I, I hear that all the time. I'm, I'm saved by grace and not by my good works. But don't we live opposite of that truth sometimes? Don't I don't know about you. Sometimes I live with just some sort of low-level guilt that is like the motivating force behind all of my obedience. Um, I might see my obedience as a way to sort of pay God back for all that he has done for me. It's, it's interesting. I think gratitude is a right motivation for godly living. But gratitude often slips into legalism that makes us think we're earning our salvation. And we have to guard against that. We have to guard against thinking that the good works we do make God happy with us. That he loves us more than he did when we were person. I love that truth. God loves you the exact same amount now as he did when he first saved you, and even before that. If you remember the gospel alone changes us and makes us holy and makes godly living possible, then we avoid this danger of, of what Paul says, nullifying the grace of God by emphasizing our works. I think so, so we don't want to think that good works save us. And tied to that is, is then, as, as we are Christians, is then to rely on ourselves and our own power for godly living. Paul says if we are if we are saved by faith, we are also going to be sanctified by faith. We can't accept salvation by grace alone through faith and then think that I'm going to do good works and I'm going to grow in godliness on my own. No, it's, it's faith in the gospel again. That's what the whole Christian life is a life of faith. If you want to live a godly life, then we must live a life that relies fully and finally on Christ alone. The gospel alone empowers godly living. Now that's it's hard, because we are called to do something, right? We're supposed to do something. Do we just let go and let God? No, I don't think so. The gospel empowers godly living, but notice this also. The second thing I want to say, the gospel instructs us in godly living. The gospel empowers us, but it also instructs us. It teaches us. I was trying to think about an illustration that would go along these lines, that it gives us the power. So maybe you're getting a new job and it takes a bunch of tools to do this job. The, 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 your employer then gives you all those tools so that you can do the job. You have the power to do it. But your employer also instructs you and gives you a model for how to do it. I think that's what the gospel does. It not only says, here's, here's the power to do it, but let me teach you how to do it, instruct you in how to do it. The grace of God appears, and it does two things. You see that in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We've, we've talked about that, how it brings salvation. But what else does it do in verse 12? It trains us. It instructs us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The gospel leads us to live a certain way. God has redeemed us from lawless deeds and is purifying us. And we are to deny certain things and to live in a certain way. If you were with us in Sunday school, just let, let's bridge the gap. What does Paul say in Ephesians? You need to put off some certain things, be renewed in your mind, and put these things on. You know, 
Paul says the same thing over and over again. He just says it in different ways because we need to keep hearing the same thing over and over again. That's what, that's what he's saying here. The, the grace of God has appeared. It's brought salvation. It's changed you so that you will renounce things. You'll put off certain things and you'll put on other things. So we deny, we put off ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness has to do with irreverence toward God. It's about, it would be speaking flippantly about God, living flippantly with our lives, presuming on God's grace, a lack of fear of God. But we also deny worldly desires. This is all the things that are sinful in our world. God has called us to purity. It has to do with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the, the pride of life. We deny these things. We deny ungodliness. We deny worldly passions. And again, let me beat this drum over and over again because it's in my own heart. Often we stop there. We have the list of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And that's what we think holiness is. It's all about the things that we are not supposed to do. Of course, if I just keep telling you not to do something and all you do is think about not doing something, eventually you're going to do it, right? (laughs) That's just how it goes. So we deny these things, but there's also the put on. There's these things that we are supposed to do. Does the Bible prohibit certain things? Yes. But the Christian life is not completely one where we just deny ourselves all the time. It's when we're called to, to holiness. What are we supposed to do? We say no to ungodliness, but then we say yes to, look at the list there, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We say yes to living sensibly, righteously, and godly, to self-control, uprightness, and godliness. This is who we want to be. Those first two things are in contrast to worldly passions and desires. Self-control is to be sober in the way that we live. We control our appetites by the power of the Spirit. And then upright or righteous, it's, it's character that is just. And then that last adverb is godly, godly lives. We live godly lives. It's the exact opposite of ungodly, obviously. We put off ungodliness and we put on godliness. We have to live lives before a holy God because that's, that's how we are to live. Our entire lives are, are to be lived quorum Deo. You remember that with Joseph? He lived before the face of God. That's how we live. That's what godliness is going to look like. We were God's enemies and we were acting against him, but now he's the father that we love and we live before his face every day. And the way that the gospel instructs us in all of this is the same way that it saved us, namely through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus, if you want to know what it looks like to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly, then we look at Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life of being sensible, self-controlled, righteous, just, godly, and reverential. Jesus' humility and his love were evident all throughout his entire life. His blameless life, his, his righteousness saves us, but it also instructs us, teaches us how we are to live. It fulfills all the demands when we fail, but it also helps us to understand the route and the way in which we are to go. We are to be like Jesus. That's who we are. So it's the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but Paul doesn't want us to forget that other component of the gospel, right? It's, it's Christ's second coming. We're to live this way in light of the coming. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How does that, how does that tie in? We remember in this season the humble first coming 
of our Savior, but we're looking toward this glorious second coming. And the hope of the second coming helps us to live godly lives. We can't just focus on the past. We focus on he's coming. It reminds us that this life on earth is, is so temporary. You know, I mean, it's, it's so brief. And our Savior is going to return in the future and he's going to give us new bodies and he's going to take us to a new heavens and a new earth and sin will be gone. And that's kind of like when life begins, you know. <laughs> up, up to that point, we're just, we're, we're, it's practice, as it were, to when we will be there and we will be like him. It reminds us, the second coming reminds us who we are and who we will be. Who will we be? We'll be the spotless bride of Christ. So we are called to continue to be that now. This is what 1 John 3, 2 through 3 says. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God. Right now, we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. What a, what a hope. And then he says this, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? Purifies himself. Just as he is pure. So we know we will be made pure. That doesn't mean that we sit back and say, well, who cares? I'll be pure one day, so I don't need to worry about it now. No, if we have that hope, then we are purifying ourselves. We are seeking to walk in a way that pleases God. So the, the gospel empowers us and it instructs us. And let me end kind of tying back into verses 1 through 10 with this, that we do this all together. If I'm honest in my uh, early Christian life, and, and I probably have a propensity towards it now, I will read this and think, now what do I need to do personally, by myself, to figure this out? But, but this is a, a community project, okay? This is something that we do together. Young and old, men and women, every member of Christ's body is seeking his glory, and we're striving to live godly lives filled with good works, and we're doing it together. But we're going to look at the details of how that, that works out. But before we think about what we do, I think it's just good to remember how holiness and godliness and salvation is possible. It's the gospel. The gospel makes godly living possible for all people. The gospel of Christ's incarnation, his death and his resurrection, his second coming, that empowers us, it instructs us how we are to live. And if you are a child of God, if you put your faith in Christ, the, the, the gospel is, it has to bear fruit in your life. That's what Paul's saying. That the gospel must bear fruit. That's what happens when people are transformed. If you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, if you have been renewed, then you will bear good fruit. That's what's going to happen. I think that could be, an, that could be discouraging, but, but let it be an encouragement. I need to strive towards godliness. I need to strive towards good works because that's who Christ has made me to be. We're called to be that. It's, don't assume that that's someone else's job. Someone else is supposed to be holy. That's the pastor's job. That's those new elders that we just brought on. Yeah, they'll be holy and they'll be godly for me. No, that's not the point. And remember, if that overwhelms you, that the God who has saved you by the gospel is also the one that's going to empower and equip you to do what he has called you to do. It's faith. Faith saves us and faith sanctifies us. Jesus calls us he equips us. He gives us all the tools that we need to do. And as we always say, he never tells us, you go there. He always says, come follow me. He instructs us. He says, just walk with me. Do what I do. 
follow me. And remember, we do that together. You're not on the path by yourself. We're walking this road together. And we're all going to struggle, and we're going to fall, and we're going to trip on the path. But when I trip on a path, someone's there to help me up, and I'm there to help others, and I'm there to encourage others, and I'm there to say, no, don't go that way, stay this way. We're in this together. And I want to think about that more. So I encourage you to meditate on, on verses 1 through 10, but do it in light of verses 11 through 14, realizing that if I'm going to be what these verses tell me to be, it's going to be because the gospel is working in me, empowering and inspiring. Lots to reflect on for my own heart, I hope for you as well. So let's take a moment and, and pause and reflect, and then I'll pray and we'll close in a song. Lord, as we sit here and, and reflect on your word, as these things come to my mind, that you would fill us with faith, that you would fill us with, with resolve, that you would fill us with confidence that, that you are doing a work in us, that you would Fill us with this sense of camaraderie that we are in this together. Lord, that you keep us from feeling alone in the battle. That you fill us with a deep sense of your love. That you have loved us. You have laid down your life for us. You've changed us. And you are going to equip us. Lord, and then I pray that your spirit would teach us all and train us all in these things. In whatever unique and special way you're doing this morning. So... Thank you for the gospel, God. Thank you that from beginning to end, you are the one that's doing the work. Because we would fail. So thank you that Jesus is, is perfect on our behalf. I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.